Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for joining us. What do you know about Detroit's civil rights history? What have you always wondered about that time period? There's a new effort to tell and preserve the stories of Detroit's civil rights pioneers, and it's taking the form of an online resource called Rise Up Detroit, and it launches today. Peter Blackmer, a lead researcher for Rise Up North and a research fellow at Wayne State's Detroit Equity Action Lab, partnered on the project with civil rights activist and founder of Rise Up North, Junius Williams. The website incorporates research and materials from Wayne State's Ruther Library and other local sources to recount narratives of resistance through written, oral, and visual materials from the civil rights and black power movements right here in Detroit. And I'm really pleased to be joined by Peter Blackmer. He is the lead researcher for Rise Up North and a research fellow at Wayne State's Detroit Equity Action Lab. Peter, welcome to Detroit Today. Also with us is Junius Williams, who is the founder of Rise Up North and a civil rights activist and attorney. Junius, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Good to be here. Yes. All right. So, Junius, I'm going to start with you. How long ago did the idea for Rise Up North pop up? How did this happen? We started with Newark, New Jersey, which is where I'm from. The uh, idea came actually a little bit before that because I saw what SNCC had done, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in preserving the stories of uh, the civil rights movement and beyond in the South. So I said, we ought to do this in the North. So we said, uh, we need to tell the story of not just civil rights, but we say civil rights and beyond, the stories of uh, the folks who have, were in the trenches, the folks who were in the organizations that made history. Uh, we, we call it the pathway to black, the black empowerment experience. So there is the first such website is called uh, riseupnewark.com, mm-hmm. and it has uh, over 1,100 documents. We have about 125 uh, video edits, uh, and so far we've gotten over a million and a half hits. Wow, wow. We've been, we've been in business for about, uh, I guess, a year and a half now. And, and uh, the connection between Newark and Detroit, uh, the, the similarities, I guess, of, of the histories, that, that has a lot to do with uh, the, the sort of coming together of this project, isn't that right? That's correct, because uh, a lot of young people don't know these stories. Uh, history is really about stories, mm-hmm. and, and history is power. And power uh, is always looking for a vacuum. If we don't tell our own stories, somebody else is going to tell them. That's absolutely true. And that's true. the way it was when I came up. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm about uh, years old, <laughs> and I, somebody was always telling our story. So I helped in, in, in many ways in Newark to become the city that it is. And uh, as a matter of fact, I'm the official historian in Newark at this point, uh, an honor that the mayor, Raspberry Rocker, bestowed upon mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're telling these stories for another generation. So there is a connection between all of these histories, all of these stories that come from places like Detroit, Chicago, uh, Philadelphia, Newark. So these these are the first two cities. We hope to do 10 cities in the north, 10 big cities. We chose Detroit because it's uh, a bigger version of Newark 
and that's that was the theory, mm. and it has paid out. It has played out. If people want to take a look at it, they can go to riseupdetroit.org and riseupnewark.com. Uh, Peter, talk about uh, your work here with uh, Rise Up North and as a research fellow at the Equity Action Lab. Uh, give us some sense of what people will learn about the civil rights movement by interacting with the with this material. Sure. So really the the major impetus to Junius's point was to be telling the stories of uh, black freedom struggles through the voices of people who are on the front lines. Um, so by visiting the websites, whether it's in Newark or in Detroit or moving forward, um, these stories of resistance, these stories of struggle, these stories of empowerment are going to be told through the voices of the people who were really forging these histories. Um, so that will be told through um, correspondence in archival letters. They'll be told through uh, photographs of demonstrations of protests. They'll be told through oral history interviews with folks who are still with us and folks who have now transitioned. Um, icons in the city like Ron Scott, uh, we have interviews um, with him on the website that have really never been seen before outside of clips from uh, the Eyes on the Prize series that was done about Detroit. Um, so it's, it's an, a portal really for engaging in these kind of intergenerational sharing and, and having those conversations and hopefully moving beyond the website and implementing those conversations in our communities, at the dinner table, in our neighborhoods, and so forth. Hmm. Uh, one of the things that I think is kind of a common narrative when, when you talk with younger people about civil rights and, and the city of Detroit is, is that they don't necessarily recognize how far back that history goes and how important some of the things that happened well before the 1960s uh, were in shaping what happened during the 1960s. Uh, talk about, there's a section of the website that's uh, called Pre-1940s, Migrations, Power, and Politics in Detroit. We, we haven't completed that section yet. The first section we're doing in Detroit focuses on the 1960s. Uh, in the Newark section, we have done that. We, we went all the way back to the beginning, and we looked at comparing what happened in the African-American journey to that of other immigrants, uh, the Italians, the, the Irish, and the Germans in Newark. And, 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 and in Detroit, it will be similarly, add the Polish people. So we, we haven't gotten that far yet in Detroit. Our introductory Section is sep uh, section three, which has to do with the 1960s. But you're right. I mean, there is a short-term view of history with young people, and they think it's just that, something in the past, <laughs> and really doesn't have anything to do with them now. Mm. And that's why we want to show them. I was, I was uh, refreshing my memory of some of the things uh, about uh, Detroit uh, in preparation for this interview, and I saw a letter from Reverend Kleeg about the problems of schools in Detroit. And it reads just like the problems of schools <laughs> in say, Detroit. I was going to say, could have written it today. <laughs> right now. That was in 1961. Yeah. And now we here we are in, 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 uh, in, in the 2000s. Same thing with Newark. So if people could see some of the same problems and also some of the same solutions that were tried, some were successful, some were not, I think it would add a whole another set of juice to mm -hmm. the current movements. Mm -hmm. 
kids would be more lit than they are now. Right, right. Uh, my guests are Peter Blackmer and Junius Williams. They're here talking about the launch of Rise Up North's Rise Up Detroit section, which is uh, today uh, it is going to be marked by a kickoff event at 4 p.m. Uh, in the community room of Wayne State University's David Adamani Undergraduate Library. Uh, this is an opportunity to engage with Detroit's history in civil rights and black power, to learn more about it, but also to sort of envelop yourself in the idea that the things we deal with today, the things that we see going on around us in our city, all have roots in the past. They have important connections to things that happened uh, not so long ago and some very long ago. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you would like to know about the civil rights and black power movements and their role in the city. Who are some of the people involved in those movements that you think we ought to be talking more about? Maybe we don't give them enough recognition or attention. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into uh, the conversation. Um, uh, Junius, I want to talk about uh, the link uh, the, between civil rights and black power uh, and the uh, both the link and the distinction. Uh, when, when we say those phrases, uh, we mean a number of different things. When I first got involved with the movement for civil rights, uh, I was uh, a teenager coming from Richmond, Virginia, and uh, I was enamored with uh, what Martin Luther King said about uh, love and action and uh, the whole philosophy of uh, turn the other cheek. And then the, the, whole, the whole operation was based upon, at that time, changing the mind of racists so that they would do nice things. Uh, well, that didn't work. And it didn't take people on the front line long to realize that. And so I was more impressed with, with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, which I joined at its tail end because I, I stayed in school for, for the full four years. But as I looked at what was happening, uh, people were beginning to think, well, we need more than civil rights. We need power. And uh, we are no different from any other ethnic group that has climbed its way up to the top in the United States. We want power just like the Italians had power, just like the Irish had power, still do. And so we said, we want black power. Well, of course, everybody just said, oh, my God, that's racist. <laughs> we can't have that. <laughs> no, we can't have that. It's not racist. It's just American. It's just international. People have to have power in order to get what they want for the community. Mm, yeah. Uh, can you talk some, Peter, about uh, that black power history here in Detroit, how it shows up in, the, in this exhibit? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, really what we're talking about, to Junius's point, is this process, this evolution of consciousness and this evolution of action in the city. Um, and what, what you'll see as it's laid out in Chapter 3 of the website um, is this process. There's the period of the Civil Rights Movement in the early 1960s leading up to uh, the rebellion in 1967. And then looking at the ways that consciousness changed after 1967 and, of course, had roots before that as well. Um, we're not talking about asking for rights. We're talking about people demanding rights and organizing to take 
rights take power on their own behalves. Um, so what we talk about is, as we get to 1966, 1967, these demands for self-determination um, that were not forthcoming um, from particularly white administrations in the city. Um, so a movement um, coming out of, say, 1964 with the Freedom Now Party and uh, independent political organizing um, in, in Detroit and elsewhere, uh, really spearheaded here by Reverend Clegg and others, um, there's a wealth of information on the website, um, whether that's newsletters from the Illustrated News, um, essays, articles written by Reverend Clegg that's talking about some of those um, really the cornerstones of what black power ideology meant and how that was being put into praxis in the mm, city. Yeah. You know, you know uh, Junius, you talk about the reaction uh, to this idea of African-Americans standing up and saying, we want the same things that other people in this society have had, which is agency over our own uh, communities, agencies over our own economics, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, do you feel like that has changed any over time? Are we in a different era where that is less of, um, less of uh, uh, an anathema, I guess, to the idea of Americanism? Uh, or are we still struggling just for the idea that that's a good idea? I, I, I call it the period when the empire struck back. <laughs> uh, we made a lot of progress in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, I wrote a book. I wrote a, a book about uh, power in my life. Uh, and in it, I talk about the concept that I just said, the empire strikes back. Uh, the, the book, by the way, is called Unfinished Agenda, power in urban power in uh, urban America in in the era of black power. So uh, the the problem now is, as I see it, is that people didn't follow the prescription that was already outlined and to try to complete the agenda that was started then. Not saying you have to just go word by word, uh, action by action, but again, history is very important. People now think they have to reinvent the wheel. So the wheel was doing pretty good until we started to put all of our eggs in one basket, and that is the election of the first black mayor, the mm -hmm. first black councilman, the first black, the first black, the first black. And we forgot the bridge that brought us over, which was organization, organization, organization. And there were certain rules by which one organized, which are immutable, really. Uh, nowadays, I think a lot of young people think that they can uh, recreate not only the wheel in terms of the actions that have to be taken, but recreate the whole concept of what organization is. And and that's, that, that's good if you can do it. Hmm. But in America, you need some of the things that uh, were already done in terms of uh, structure and form. Uh, but, of course, you can't get tied down and weighted down by history. You have to use history to go forward. So I would say that some of the solutions, uh, for, for example, I've seen people say, well, we're going to go out and demonstrate and we're going to take over such and such street. Let's just say broad and market and new because I know that better. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, well, okay, how many people did you have? Well, oh, we had 50 people. And I say, well, you didn't take over nothing. They just let you have it for a little while. <laughs> and that's the difference. That's the difference. You have to, nowadays, especially with, with the advent of, uh, of, of corporate media, you have to have thousands of people 
to take over anything, to get anybody to notice what you're doing. Now, what we learned from the movement some 50 years ago is when television was new, they were very happy to come out and look at our demonstrations of 50 people. Nowadays, with the consolidation and, and the incorporation of, of, of free speech into some kind of formula that uh, media folks can make money off of, they don't want to tell those stories necessarily. So we have to come up with some new solutions, hmm. still from a basis of organization, but also from the idea that your mobilization must adapt to the times. Yeah, uh, uh, Peter, you're wearing a Black Lives Matter button. Um, I wonder what you make of what Junius is saying about that connection between organizing in the past, organizing now, what have we learned? And it, it seems to me that Black Lives Matter uh, has been incredibly effective at uh, the exact kind of media attention that, uh, that, that Junius is talking about. Is that because it's mimicking uh, the things that we learned in the past? Mm, that's a good question, Stephen. <laughs> um, I think that... Yeah, I think there, there's been evidence that there's a lot of lessons that have been learned. Um, but to Junius's point, history is useful as a tool. And so there's times when it's useful. There's times when lessons have shown that certain strategies, tactics, et cetera, aren't. Um, and so I think one of the big conversations that's been going on um, and that has emerged um, through the course of the movement for black lives and others is what is the efficacy of, um, uh, of organizing through electoral politics? Mm. Um, and with the, the Obama administration, the shortcomings of his administration in advancing black freedom struggles, um, it's raised continuous questions that I think can be um, looked back in history for some sort of insights, um, particularly when we're talking about um, the era of black mayors in the United States, uh, whether that's in Newark or in Gary or in Detroit or elsewhere. Um, that kind of historical analysis of what were the successes and shortcoming, what were the limitations of black electoral politics in the 1970s, and what can that tell us about current power structures? Um, that those uh, those conversations are critical for having this kind this um, this analysis. And also, I think an important point to raise here in Detroit is um, how present this historical continuity is. Um, in some in many of the leading organizing spaces in the city, the voices. Um, that are occupying so much space are those who have a deep connection to the city's mm -hmm. movement history. Mm -hmm. um, whether that's young folks who have participated in Detroit summer uh, under the Boggses and involved in their thinking and their organizing work that way, um, manifest in the Bog School particularly and a lot of the work that Allied Media is doing as well. Um, or if we're talking about intergenerational organizations like the Detroit People's Platform and We the People of Detroit, um, history is so incredibly present within these organizations. And I've had recent conversations with folks like um, Deborah Taylor, uh, we the people who would talk about how important that was for the struggles that they were waging around water, uh, particularly when Joanne Watson was on council mm. um, and talking about how important her knowledge of history was, that knowledge of self and bringing that kind of perspective into current organizing work that was essential for the organizing that they were doing. Yeah. And that's why we, we have partnered with some of the people that uh, Peter just mentioned. For example, uh, I call them uh, today's griots, uh, like, uh, like Joanne Watson, Helen Moore, uh, Dan Aldridge, Elliot Hall, Frank Joyce, Charles Farrell, all of these people that I'm sure are no strangers to your audience, 
because they, they are oh the my, embodiment. Have been here on the show before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they are the embodiment of living history, mm. and uh, they keep on ticking because they have learned the lessons but carry forward. Uh, the other thing I want to add to that is one of the things we want to do in Detroit, uh, with the help of people like that, is to bring this information into the schools, because young people can learn it on a day-to-day basis. Sure. We've been successful in in inculcating uh, the, the the words and the thoughts and the lessons of history into the Newark School District, uh, and we want to hopefully do the same thing here. Hmm. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Uh, speaking of phones, uh, someone's phoning in here in the studio. Uh, let's go to Aaron in Detroit. Aaron, welcome to Detroit today. Thanks. Hey, interesting. Uh conversation that brought to mind Boyd Brown and Bethune. I wonder if the guests remember that case where these three young men supposedly shot it out with stress back then and mm-hmm. it was a big story. They hunted them down. I think they ended up catching a couple of them in Atlanta somewhere and they put Brown on trial, but it brought a lot of light and a, a lot of negative light to stress back then mm-hmm. and to how uh, unequal the laws were towards African Americans. Yeah. When it- yeah. No, Aaron, that's a that's a great reference. Uh, and in fact, the new film about uh, about Ken Cockrell and stress uh, spends a lot of time recounting what happened to to Boyd Brown and Bethune. Uh, Peter or Junius, uh, do you have a response to what Aaron's talking about there? Yeah. Um, so there there is some documentation in the website um, about that particular case. Um, there's uh, original documents from the Ruther Library. Um, there's some oral history interviews of folks talking, particularly Joanne Watson speaking uh, about those histories. Um, but in recent conversations, um, as part of the Detroit Equity Action Lab, we co-host um, a series called Detroiters Speak. Um, and this year's focus was on policing. And in, a sec- in, in one session when we were talking about those histories of stress, um, Melba Joyce Boyd was in attendance and shared a little bit more and dug deeper into those histories of Brown Boyd and Pethune, um, which raises so many different questions as well outside of just the role of stress, but of the role of um, police corruption, of mm. drug trafficking within neighborhoods and resistance efforts to protect com- neighborhoods, protect communities um, that Brown Boyd and Bethune were waging against the police. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, Peter Blackmer and Junius Williams. It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, Up next, we're going to continue our conversation about Detroit history. We're going to talk about debunking the myths of the 1950s golden age of Detroit with the author of a new book who is speaking at Mary Grove College tonight. Also, tune in tomorrow when we meet the new chair of the Michigan Democratic Party. Lavora Barnes is going to join the program. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. The 1950s were a golden age of prosperity for auto workers in Detroit. High wages, generous benefits, it all catapulted many, many workers to a thriving blue-collar middle class. Or that's what we've been told. 
Our next guest, though, says that's largely myth because it fails to address the conditions of that work and the instability of those conditions that created uh, that were created for auto workers and their families. Daniel J. Clark, the author of Disruption in Detroit, Challenging the 1950s Prosperity Myth, joins us now to unpack the narrative around post-war Detroit and separate fact from fiction. He is speaking later today at Mary Grove College for their Institute for Detroit Studies, 44th Defining Detroit event. Um, Daniel J. Clark, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's start with uh, the, the, the sort of central premise here. The 1950s, you hear lots of people talk very glowingly and reminiscing about uh, the, the way that the city was in the 1950s and that it was, in many people's estimation, at its pinnacle, uh, that the auto industry that, that sort of coalesced around uh, the early part of the century, really started to thrive after the war, and prosperity was everywhere. You say that's not really the story. That's right. Uh, that is the story that I started with. Uh, <laughs> if you read the literature, if you read about Detroit now or hear anything in the popular culture about Detroit, that is the story. This was when auto workers entered the middle class, uh, that they could buy new homes, a car or two, a place up north. Uh, you know, that was uh, the, the, the premise that I started this project with. I think those who are familiar with um, the works of historians you've probably had in the show, like Tom Segru, Kevin Boyle, mm-hmm. knew that this wasn't necessarily the case for African-American workers, you know, who suffered discrimination at factory gates and were disproportionately affected by automation and the decentralization of jobs away from Detroit. But still, that uh, reality has been somewhat submerged in this celebration of the 50s as a time when, when everything was working in Detroit and auto workers you had a fair shake, and 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 um, I'm not challenging, uh, um, you know, what Tom Segrew and Kevin Boyle have argued about African Americans' experiences. If anything, that seems to be more true for everybody than um, uh, than we previously thought. But um, you know, I, I'm an oral historian, a labor historian. I moved to Detroit. I'm from Michigan originally, but uh, was looking for a project to merge those interests, and thought, hey, why not auto, or interview some retired auto workers to learn about their prosperity, mm-hmm. to learn about how they handled. Uh, um, this golden age, I knew things were likely to be different if I interviewed African-American workers, but I thought for white workers, that would be the story. But after about 40, 45 interviews, that was not what I was finding. I was finding that all these workers seemed to experience the period from World War II to 1960 as a period of insecurity and, and instability. And so uh, that forced me to reconsider what, what I was thinking about the period. Uh, that's a really interesting distinction to draw, too. Uh, as you say, the, the, the conditions for African-Americans at that time are starting to be talked about in more popular ways, uh, in more widespread ways. But there, there, there still is this, uh, this lingering notion that for everybody else, things were, were, were pretty good. Can you talk about some of the things that made that period of time in, you know, uh, unstable for, uh, for, for Detroiters, unstable for auto workers, even if they were not African-American. Sure. Um, just to, uh, if you'll indulge me a bit of background, sure. I, I wasn't sure if after those 40 to 45 interviews, I had just found the few outliers who hadn't <laughs> managed people to, who yeah, had rough. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't handle it, you know, uh, in, in this era of prosperity. Uh, oral history is difficult. Transcribing is time-consuming, arduous. I was trying to figure out how I could either corroborate or contradict the, those findings. 
uh, without doing a thousand more interviews. <laughs> and uh, um, I wanted to be alive when the project was done. Uh, although I love the interview process, don't get me wrong. Uh, but I decided instead to read local newspapers. I read the Detroit Free Press, the Detroit News, the Michigan Chronicle. And all I was looking for initially was to see if those uh, um, sources would you know, provide a story of prosperity and, and, and job security, or, or if they would somehow rather corroborate uh, what my interviewees were telling me. And uh, it didn't take long for me to realize that uh, the interview, or excuse me, the newspaper evidence overwhelmingly corroborated what the interviewees were, were telling me. Uh, you asked about some of the reasons, and um, there were lots of them. Uh, certainly, automation and decentralization are, are in the mix. But after World War II, it, it took a long time for any kind of job stability to occur, if it ever did. A lot of that had to do with materials shortages. Mm. Uh, the post-war boom was nationwide, and everybody was scrapping for metal. I guess I should say competing for metal, including scrap metal. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, the um, appliance industry, uh, you know, um, the growth of homes and big buildings. Um, in order to grow as a nation, we had to have more train cars and more pipelines and oil refineries and even more steel mills. And all of those took steel, and it took it away from the auto industry. Um, there were also uh, shortages of copper and aluminum and and, and glass and Sometimes those shortages were because of strikes, mm. uh, big strikes in the post-war period, industrial or industry-wide strikes in coal and in steel. As they tried to cope with post-war inflation, you know, particular conditions in their uh, work. Um, but you can imagine what would happen if the steel industry went on strike. The auto industry closes down, you know, within a couple of weeks, and um, you know that happened repeatedly. Uh, there, there's a famous 1945-1946 GM strike where Walter Ruther demanded a 30% increase in wages with no increase in the price of cars, and you know that's it dominates a lot of the early post-war Detroit labor history. And in reading the newspapers, I realized that there was a glass workers' strike at the same time. Nobody in Detroit was making cars. You know, there was no incentive to settle. But what that meant is that tens of thousands of Detroiters were out of work for prolonged periods of, periods of time with no uh, or very minimal meager unemployment benefits if they were on strike, no strike benefits. Sure. And so I really focused on how difficult it was for these people to survive without, uh, without regular income. And one of the things I'm curious about from your standpoint is why you think this other narrative about this being this uh, unmitigated stretch of prosperity and growth uh, why does that persist, given that you are, are, are so easily able to, to, to kind of unearth a different narrative beneath that? Why, why have we wanted to forget that this was what happened? Yeah, uh, that one I struggle with, and I, I need help from others <laughs> as well in trying to figure it out. But yeah. there are a lot of different ways of looking at it, I think. And I, maybe I can start with how the history profession, the labor history subfield, has dealt with it. And you know, initially, um, labor historians agreed that there was this post-war boom with caveats, um, but were disappointed in that because, in that view, it took away from any kind of radical mission. So the the uh, um, the more militant uh, uh, experiences of the 1930s, and the idea was that uh, workers became embourgeoisied. You know, that they they had lost their their radical edge and became comfortable with uh, their uh, richer material existences. Okay. Um, and now some of those same historians and other historians are, are arguing that this was the best time possible for auto workers because things have gotten so dire, because wealth inequality, income inequality is so vast uh, that this you know, could be viewed as, as a, a better time. Um, I do think sometimes we read history backwards. 
if auto workers at some point were able to, um, you know, have a jobs bank and um, be able to travel up north on a regular basis to their little cottage or their little deer hunting cabin, then they must have been able to do it uh, back in the 50s as well. Uh, sometimes scholars have just looked at the wage rates, which are in the contracts, and have multiplied by 50 or 40 hours a week and 50 weeks a year, and have determined on that basis how much workers made. But that had no bearing on reality since they were laid off so much. But I think we all want to think that things were better at a certain point hmm. in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and even the people I interviewed at first talked about their credited years of service for their pensions. I worked 36 years, or I worked 40 years for Chrysler, I worked 35 years for Ford. And that came across as consecutive years without interruption. But as I talked with people just about their lives, what happened next, you know, where did you go, what did you do? I realized that there were huge interruptions, that many of these people tried to be auto workers in the 1950s, but were only able to be auto workers about half of the time. Hmm. Uh, my guest is Daniel Clark. He's the author of Disruption in Detroit, Challenging the 1950s Prosperity Myth. He is an associate professor at Oakland University, and he will be at Mary Grove College today uh, to talk about his book uh, as part of the Institute for Detroit Studies Defining Detroit series. This is the 44th lecture in that series. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, we're talking about the 1950s, Detroit in the 1950s, a time when lots of us think of uh, kind of an idyllic stretch that uh, was about prosperity and growth here in the city. But was it as idyllic as many people say it was? Did you have a parent or grandparent who worked in the city back then? What did they think of life in the city at that time? What do they tell you about what was going on here? Do you feel like there is a similar narrative maybe about Detroit today and the comeback narrative that we have? Are we talking about one sliver of what life looks like here while ignoring big parts of the reality for other people? And what stories are we not including into our narrative right now here in Detroit. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we will try to work you into the conversation. We'd love to hear from people, of course, who were around for the 1950s and remember specifically what the city was like. But we uh, would also love to hear from folks um, who've heard the stories about the 1950s, maybe from your grandparents. Uh, how much of that did you believe? Uh, and how much of it were they able to tell you uh, that was not about things just being Perfect. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, Daniel, I want to talk about um, how this story fits into the sort of larger national context of uh, growth and prosperity in the 1950s, this, the Eisenhower years seen uh, everywhere as, uh, as sort of the beginning of uh, the American half of the 20th century when the country becomes uh, preeminent economic and, and military power. There are lots of things that we could point to today that we would have to attribute at least in part to those things. I mean, the, the incredible wealth that uh, people are able to accumulate that, at that point, uh, primarily through real estate, right? Buying of homes, building of homes. Uh, we build the suburbs which opens up housing uh, opportunities 
um, that that didn't exist before. How does this narrative about inconsistency and instability fit into that larger story about uh, about growth, a story that we all can sort of point to now and say, well, that did happen. Sure. Well, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, one of the things that struck me, especially through the newspaper part of the research, was that Detroit was constantly out of sync with the national economy. Uh, we think of Detroit as pushing the national economy, driving this prosperity, literally, you know, um, with auto workers and the auto industry leading the way. Um, but Detroit suffered more than other uh, sectors, other, other places in the country during the official recessions, 1949, 1954, 1958. But the volatility of the auto industry often meant that um, uh, although the automakers, the companies were making significant money, the auto workers were often laid off. Um, how that worked, for example, in 1955, the auto industry produced a record number of vehicles, over 9 million vehicles. And mm. Each one of those vehicles was purchased by a dealer, therefore adding to the profit margins of the auto companies. At the end of the year, there were a million unsold vehicles on dealers' lots. Um, and you know that meant that for the next two years, automakers ratcheted back their production totals while the company still made lots of money. And um, the auto workers were experiencing you know, uh, underemployment, uh, serious layoffs, and things just got worse, the 1958 recession. It was interesting that... Um, the Eisenhower administration kept declaring each year the new best year ever, 1956, the new best year ever, 1957, the new best year ever. And they would send representatives to Detroit to trumpet this wonderful thing to Detroit audiences. But nobody in Detroit thought things were going well for the auto industry and auto workers. They would speak to the D Detroit Economic Club and get booed. Uh, um, you know, <laughs> and, and some of the speakers would say, oh, I mean, except for Detroit, except for, except for Detroit. Uh, and, um, uh, and that was one thing that struck me, that really nobody but the most ardent boosters for the Detroit, uh, um, what was it called? Um, uh, the, um, but anyways, you know, Detroit uh, you know, business leaders, uh, they, they didn't think that, uh, that the the auto industry was stable. And in fact, uh, throughout the mid to late 50s, there were constant calls from newspaper editors, from business leaders, even from some union leaders for auto workers to get out of the auto industry, find something else to do with your life because you're not going to have a stable, secure uh, income in the auto industry. Mm. And in part, that was because so many hundreds of, or tens of thousands, eventually hundreds of thousands of people moved to Detroit thinking that it was going to be prosperous, thinking that it was going to provide that ticket to the middle class. And that just added to the number of unemployed people in the city. Mm. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Daniel Clark, author of Disruption in Detroit, Challenging the 1950s Prosperity Myth. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Daniel Clark. He's the author of Disruption in Detroit, Challenging the 1950s Prosperity Myth. He is speaking tonight at Mary Grove College as part of the Institute for Detroit Studies, Defining Detroit series. Um, we're talking about myths, the idea that the 1950s were a period of unbridled or uninterrupted growth and prosperity here in the city of Detroit because of the growth and the success of the auto industry. That's the narrative we've all sort of grown up accepting. Uh, Daniel's work 
really takes a second look at that and exposes some of the inconsistencies that made life uncertain, unstable for a lot of families at that time. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Tell us if you have memories of Detroit from the 1950s. What were those memories like? Talk about prosperity uh, and struggle uh, as you experienced it maybe in the 1950s or the 1960s. Uh, If you weren't around back then, give us a call and tell us what you've heard maybe from your grandparents or your parents, about the city at that time. Uh, As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. We also want to hear if you think we are doing the same kind of myth-making now here in Detroit. When we talk about the city coming back, we talk about all of the things that are changing for the better in certain parts of the city. Are we ignoring the things that aren't changing significantly for so many? Are we building yet another sort of false story about ourselves uh, and our city. Um, Daniel, I want to ask you specifically about that. Do you see echoes of the things that you've uncovered in this book in the conversations we're having about Detroit today? Sure. My mind is, uh, you know, planted more in the 50s, but uh, um, <laughs> but I do see parallels. And in part, it's because uh, I think we always have to think of Detroit as many Detroits. Uh, during the 1950s, there were an awful lot of local leaders who just simply couldn't accept that there were these problems in working class neighborhoods because they would look and they would see that business was good at, at Hudson's downtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would see that uh, um, Federal Reserve totals showed that bank accounts were overloaded and in the aggregate, okay? And the idea was that workers were just hoarding their money, not not spending it, <laughs> not, uh, uh, not, not doing what they should do to help boost the economy. Um, and when they would send reporters out into working-class neighborhoods, they would see uh, threatened storefronts. They would see shuttered storefronts. They would see people who um, were uh, whose incomes were directly related to the fate of the auto industry, whether it was a bakery or a furniture store, whatever the case may be, uh, a bar. <laughs> and, uh, um, uh, and so I, I think that uh, a lot of people who have the real glowing, rosy memories of Detroit probably weren't in those working-class neighborhoods sure. and, um, and probably – um, thought at the time that those workers were get, making too much money and were probably uh, the cause of the demise of the auto industry because that was a, a chronic narrative in the 50s. And it was at a time when it was understood by the automakers and by business leaders that auto workers themselves would not be able to buy new cars. Uh, we thought Henry Ford had taken care of that with a $5 day, but uh, GM structured their uh, uh, pricing and their wages so that uh, um, uh, in their view, auto workers could buy a used car. Mm-hmm. They could have a car, but it would be a used car. And, and the new car market would be aimed at a much smaller slice, a much higher income slice. Uh, and, and so you know, I, I think that, that uh, um, you know, our, our sense of Detroit as being somewhat monolithic or something that can be viewed in the aggregate is somewhat, aggregate is somewhat misleading. I think that's obviously true today with neighborhoods versus Midtown and, and, and things like this. You know, I, it's also something that I, that I find myself doing with my own experience here in Detroit and memory, right? So I grew up here in the 1970s and 1980s. The 1970s were a particularly rough stretch for the city of Detroit. I mean, it was it was uh, a time of incredible tension among the population. Uh, that's when uh, depopulation really kicks into high gear. Uh, the, the national economy struggles, of course, take their, their toll on Detroit. 
But, you know, I was a small child uh, during that time. And I think of the city in kind of idyllic terms mm-hmm. because of that. I think of the things that uh, that I was able to do. And I talk, I talk all the time with my children who are growing up in a really different Detroit about how much better mm-hmm. <laughs> things were then, which sure. is kind of absurd, right? <laughs> uh, uh, it's not it's also not true. It's just about your point of view. And I think, uh, uh, you know, it's really hard sometimes to to separate that from fact, right? Uh, this is what I experienced, so it's true. And it, that doesn't always account for uh, for the greater context. Well, it's a good point. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, as I reflect back on the interviews which launched this whole project, uh, most of the people I talked with had never really thought about their lives in their entirety. They often thanked me for the opportunity to actually reflect <laughs> this way. But they recognized that there was probably some nostalgic element to uh, um, how they viewed their childhoods, whether they were you know, in Arkansas or the Upper Peninsula or whatever the case may be. Um, but remember as well that no one in living in real time in the 1950s felt the burden of being representative of, um, you know, the dynamic American economy in the golden age or something like that. They were trying to get by. Most had second jobs. Some had third jobs. Some were going back and forth to wherever they had migrated from, you know, to Detroit. Uh, and, and so they didn't feel, you know, the burden of being you know, historical archetypes. Uh, and in fact, many of the people were, thought fondly of the period, not so much because it was a period of material splendor, but because they had gotten through tough times. Mm. And I think that people do uh, remember those experiences and, and take much more pride in them than perhaps, uh, uh, I would guess, just having, you know, uh, uh, unlimited amounts of money and the ability to do whatever you want to do. Uh, so, you know, the people I talked with didn't feel miserable necessarily. None of them really wanted to go back and revisit those years, uh, but they had struggled, they had made it, and uh, and they had dealt with conditions as they had found them, and uh, um, we're proud of that. Yeah, yeah. Now, let's get to some of the callers here. Uh, Cindy in Clarkston, what's on your mind? Well, the reason I called is... Um, I didn't grow up in Detroit, but uh, my dad worked for Walker Manufacturing in Jackson, mm. and they made mufflers for cars. Mm. And I was 11 years old uh, at the time of that 1958 strike. And I remember uh, my parents telling us we wouldn't be getting new coats that year. Mm. And as it got closer to Christmas, I had this dream that, that there were a bunch of presents under the tree. They were all wrapped up, and as I started to unwrap them, they were all old Reader's Digest magazines. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and <laughs> That's a very vivid mm-hmm. dream for a child to have. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so so the, the, the struggles that your parents were having were really shaping your sense of, of life at that time, Cindy. They always did. But um, anyway, like I you know, told the guy that answered the phones, you know, we, you know, we weren't living a high life for sure. Mm. I had nothing to compare it to, but I'm sure my parents that grew up during the Depression thought things, you know, weren't, you know, weren't dire like they'd been, you know, 15 years or more before. Yeah, so. yeah. Cindy, that's, a, that's a, a great point, and I'm really glad you called. There again, it's about perspective, right? What are you... Mm-hmm accustomed to what do you remember and what are you experiencing now they're kind of they're kind of tied together um let's go to frank in detroit frank welcome to detroit today hi thanks for taking my call sure. um i grew up, i was born in 1950 in the west grand boulevard linwood area on the near west side of detroit mm-hmm. and it's a working class area and i had i my sense of things at the time 
as a kid growing up was that it was a kind of stable. Uh, you know, it was integrated. Uh, restrictive covenants had recently fallen, and so mm-hmm. the neighborhood was recently being had recently become integrated. It was ethnically diverse and diverse in a lot of ways, and it seemed like a great place to grow up to me. But to the adults, there was tremendous insecurity going on at the time. I mean, there was all this movement. People were thinking about moving out because they were <laughs> subsidized to move out by FHA loans. Mm-hmm. Loans and and there was you know people were on the move and adults. This is something I remember. Adults, especially in the auto industry, would have to get a second job uh, to cover for times when they were laid off and wow. in, in order to make things work. So there was an awful lot of financial insecurity in the neighborhood, even though see, things to us kids seemed fairly, fairly stable right. and fairly okay. It yeah. didn't last long. Yeah. Uh, Frank, I really appreciate the call and and the memories. Uh, thanks very much uh, for participating here. Uh, okay, Daniel Clark, uh, you are at Mary Groves Institute for Detroit Studies tonight uh, at 7 p.m. for the 44th Defining Detroit event. Uh, give us a little preview of, uh, of what people will hear. Well, I'll be talking about many of the things that we're, we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like to talk a lot about the research process, not to bore people with the thousands of hours we spend you know, <laughs> reading microfilm and, yes. and, and doing those sorts of Familiar things. Familiar with that process. <laughs> but I, I, I think it's important uh, for uh, anyone to understand how we come up with these ideas. We don't just manufacture them out of thin air, but on the other hand, uh, we have to interpret and have to uh, infer, and, and, and we're never entirely certain uh, about the past. And so I really appreciate the callers. That helps me get my bearings. And even if they had had different perspectives that didn't conform with my thesis, it would still be really important. But I'll be talking in more depth about what I found, what caused you know, the insecurity and instability as well. Uh, and, and probably a little bit more as well about um, uh, the, the differences between African-American workers and white workers in terms of specifics and how to cope with uh, the insecurity and instability because second jobs were a lot harder to come by for African-Americans. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that distinction is is really, really fascinating and important. Okay, Daniel Clark, author of Disruption in Detroit, Challenging the 1950s Prosperity Myth. Thanks very much for being here with well, us. Thanks so much for the opportunity. And good luck with your talk yeah, tonight. I really appreciate it. Okay, that's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow when we're going to meet Lavora Barnes. She is the first black woman to lead Michigan's Democratic Party. She'll join the program to talk about her goals for Democrats heading into 2020 and more. Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevesson. Trevethan, and our associate producers are Anna Marie Seisling, Gus Navarro, Nicholas French, and Chris Williams. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Gobian. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.